0: Great, Oh, thank you everyone for coming to this uh, event with Chris Dixon. Uh, before we get going, I have to say a few words about parking and when we close. Um, we have free parking for all bookstore events behind Rasmussen Hall, next to the Wells Fargo Sports Center and in front of the bookstore. You do not have to pay for parking. If you get a ticket, you just tell me, I void it. If you paid, thank you. I can't reimburse you, but you know it for next time. We have some light refreshments. You're welcome to take at the table. The bookstore closes at 6 o'clock. We have to be out of the building by 6 o'clock, so please keep that in mind. Great. Um, Our event, um, author and activist Chris Dixon presents presents another politics, talking across today's transformative movements. Uh, Recent decades have seen the exciting convergence of anti-authoritarian radicalism and broader-based movements in the U.S. and Canada. Drawing on interviews with organizers across North America, this event will explore the meaning of another politics. Chris Dixon, originally from Anchorage, is a longtime community organizer, writer, and educator with a Ph.D. from the University of California at Santa Cruz. He serves on the board of the Institute for Anarchist Studies and the advisory board for the activist journal Upping the Ante. He currently lives in Ottawa, Canada, on unceded Algonquin territory. His new book is Another Politics, Talking Across Today's Transformative Movements, and is published by University of California Press. And we have some copies here. If you'd like to purchase it, you can do so at the register downstairs. I'm sure Chris will sign it for you. And um, it is on consignment, so Chris gets most of the money. So that's, I hope it encourages you to buy it. Right now, I'd like to welcome Chris Dixon. And Chris, please say a lot more about yourself, and we'll have time for a Q&A after your presentation. Thank you all for coming.
1: So I think the lights are about to get a little bit dim, but we'll still be able to see each other. I'm hoping it won't be too much of that uh, watching a movie kind of effect. Uh, Can everyone hear me okay? Okay. If at some point you can't hear me, please do some kind of a signal with your ear so that I know that I'm speaking quietly. I have a tendency when I'm nervous to talk more slowly and more quietly. It's a kind of contradictory response that most people don't have. So I am delighted to be here in Anchorage. This is the... 63rd event that I've done for this book, and this is the 34th city I've been in since September. Uh, and I have to say that coming to Anchorage is in fact the most meaningful of them all um, because it's coming home, um, and it's, in many ways this is the place where I started thinking about this stuff and learning about this stuff uh, and really starting to dig into it in a way that I then have gone on to uh, take further than perhaps I ever thought I would take it. Uh, so. Thank you for coming out and I'm really happy to be here with you. I wanna start actually with a practice which is much more common in the Canadian context, but which I think is actually really appropriate and useful, especially in the Alaskan context. And that's to acknowledge the territory that we're on. We're on the traditional territory of the Dena'ina people. And I say this not as a kind of guilt trip and not as um, some kind of like piece of political rhetoric but actually as a way to talk about the fact that whatever we're doing here on this land, working, playing, raising children, eating, we're doing it in an ongoing colonial context, right? One in which this land was actually stolen from people and restructured in really fundamental ways. And that's an ongoing process that actually shapes all of us here. I want to bring this up to also point to the fact that there is, in fact, ongoing indigenous resistance and resilience across this continent that's calling into question many of the ways that we think about territorial sovereignty and whose land we're on. I'm hoping that some of what I'm saying right now will enter into what I'm gonna be sharing with you and hopefully as well into the discussion that we have together. Am I making sense in what I'm saying? Okay. So let me say a little bit about myself so you know where I'm coming from, uh, and then I'll get into explaining what I'm gonna do with our time together this afternoon, evening. Uh, So, first of all, thanks to Rachel and the UAA Bookstore for hosting this event. It's really a wonderful space to be in, and I particularly have appreciated, Rachel, how on top of things you are. Um, After doing more than 60 events, I've had a full range of experiences, and I can say that you're one of the most together people that I've worked with. so my name is Chris, as Rachel said, and I'm from here. Uh, I currently live in Ottawa, the national capital of Canada, on unceded Algonquin territory. And between living here and living in Canada, I live down the US West Coast in Washington, Oregon, and California. And then I moved into the Canadian context eight years ago. In all of those places where I have lived, I have been involved in social and environmental justice organizing of one kind or another for more than 20 years. So the perspective I bring is one that's shaped by being in these many places and doing these many kinds of political activity. And uh, that's really what carried me into working on this project that I'm gonna talk with you about. Um, The other thing is that uh, I am a deprofessionalized academic. So what that means is that I went to graduate school at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I got a PhD and I never had any intention of pursuing an academic career. My plan was to actually use the resources of the University of California to further the movements and social struggles that I care about. And that's part of this work that I'm doing here and I've been doing. And what that looked like over the last eight years was me traveling around the United States and Canada interviewing longtime activists and organizers involved in a variety of movements and asking questions about what are we learning together as we participate in struggles to try and change the world? What kinds of challenges are we coming up against? What kinds of consistent questions are we facing, often unresolved questions are we facing as we try and do this work? And my hope in doing all of these interviews, and really with these interviews, I was focusing on talking to people who don't write, right? People who don't write books, rarely write articles, maybe occasionally write a blog post, but are actually generating all kinds of experience and knowledge as they do the work that they're doing. Not surprisingly, these people tend to be not-white men. And I actually really prioritized the voices of women and people of color and queers and working-class people among those that I interviewed, and this was very intentional. My hope was to pull some of all of this knowledge together in a way that could be useful, could be shared, across movements, across people's experiences of trying to transform the world. And I'm really happy that it's finally come together into this book, Another Politics, which is my attempt to try and sort of synthesize so much of this thinking and so many of these activities. And on this note, I should say that you will witness a magic trick this afternoon, uh, that the one magic trick I'm capable of doing. And the magic trick is this, I'll be talking And it will look as if there are ideas coming out of my head and then coming out of my mouth. But in fact, what I'm gonna be sharing with you is based on the ideas and the experiences of dozens if not hundreds of people. So the illusion is that I'm a brilliant person, I'm not. But I'm really happy to be connected to many brilliant social movements. And that's part of what I'm trying to convey uh, in what I'm gonna talk about. Am I making sense in what I'm saying here? This is is not about me being humble, it's actually about me pointing to a social fact of how knowledge works. It's often collective. People actually learn things and figure out things together. Okay, The last thing I want to say, as is my practice, whenever I speak publicly, is that I like to dedicate what I'm going to say to a particular person or organization that has really influenced and shaped my thinking in terms of what... I've tried to do in this book and also in what I've tried to do politically in the world. So today, I want to dedicate what I'm going to say to Ruth Sheridan, who has been my anarchist mentor for more than 20 years and really shaped my thinking in profound ways and offered so much to Anchorage in her commitment to social justice and long-haul struggle. So this is dedicated to you, Ruth. And then I want to also dedicate what I'm gonna say to Stellar Secondary School, where I started figuring this stuff out in the first place. Okay, so um, here's what I'm gonna do. In this presentation today, I want to talk about a radical political current, a radical political tendency that I think is increasingly influential across a range of social movements that have been happening in recent years across this continent. I think that we can see this set of radical politics within uh, the Occupy movement that emerged first in New York with Occupy Wall Street. I think we can see it in Idle No More, which is a resurgence of indigenous activism, particularly in the Canadian context, but actually has also had some presence in Alaska, particularly in Southeast, Um, but also there has been Idle No More in Anchorage too. Um, I think we can see it in aspects of the radical climate justice movement particularly um, well we're seeing some of this right now actually in Seattle as 13 people were arrested today trying to block uh, Shell's offshore rig from coming up. I think we can see it in the Quebec student movement that's carried out two very militant strikes in the last three years to actually try and halt tuition hikes in their province and in many other things I think we can definitely see it in the surge of activity that is getting called Black Lives Matter right now, and is happening in many, many cities, across the United States especially. For shorthand, I'm gonna call this radical politics, this political tendency that I'll be talking about, the anti-authoritarian current. And I'll get more into explaining what I mean by this term and why I chose this term in a little while. But this is the basic thing. When I say anti-authoritarian current, I'm speaking specifically to these two features of a set of emerging politics across these movements. The first one is a commitment to trying to transform a whole set of interlocking systems and institutions that structure this society. And these are institutions and systems that are related to how race works in the society, how gender is structured, and the kinds of gender hierarchies at play, It's related to capitalism and class relations and the concentration of wealth and wealth inequality in the society. It's related to how sexuality happens and how it's policed. It's related to history of colonization on this continent. And also, this is all deeply interconnected with the state, with how governments work, and a kind of violence that governments use to actually hold a whole set of social relations in place. So this is one aspect. Activists involved in this politics are trying to change that whole set of interlocking set of systems and relations. The other aspect is people aren't content to just hang out in subcultural activist scenes. They wanna try and connect with people beyond those scenes and actually work with people involved in a whole variety of struggles and situations in their lives to try and change society. So these are the two kinds of defining features of this politics that I'm going to be talking about today. And like I said, I'll get more into it. Are you following me so far in what I'm saying here? Okay. So over the last couple of decades, this has really surged. This kind of politics has really surged in North America. And we can see a lot of examples of this. People involved in the anti-authoritarian current are building networks, campaigns, and organizations of many different kinds. and. Just to throw out a few instances, one is the network called No One Is Illegal that exists across the Canadian context with collectives in most major cities. I'll talk more about No One Is Illegal a little bit later. Another thing to mention is national organizations in the United States like Critical Resistance, which I'll talk about a little bit more, that does work around the prisons, and Insight Women of Color Against Violence, another organization that I'll spend some time talking about. And also, there are people involved in national networks like Rising Tide, involved in ongoing work related to the environment and climate change. And then there's all kinds of people involved in lots and lots of tiny little groups and organizations and activist publications and other things. But there's a lot happening, and it's been actually growing and surging significantly over the last 20 years. So those of us in this current, and I'm going to say us and we, because I'm part of this politics, I identify wholeheartedly with it. We're building stuff, we're building organizations, we're building campaigns, we're building networks. We're trying to build and bring our commitments into a whole range of struggles and activities related to racial justice, gender equality, economic justice, uh, indigenous solidarity activism, environmental justice, and so on. And what I want to do today is briefly, in about 40 minutes, try and give you a glimpse of what some of this looks like right now. Like, what, what's actually happening? But first of all, where did it come from? Uh, and what are some of the core animating principles of this politics? And, uh, and also kind of like, what can we draw from it? So I'm a really very linear thinker. And so I like to tell you exactly what I'm gonna do before I do it. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk a little bit about history, then I'm gonna turn toward some principles, and then I'm gonna conclude with some lessons for movement building that I think we can take from some of these recent experiences. That's the plan. Make sense in terms of a plan? Okay, and then we'll have plenty of time for a discussion after that where you can offer your fierce disagreements bring up your questions, and we can really get into it any way that you, that you want to. Okay, so to start off, um, I'm trained as a social movement historian. So what that means is that whenever I look at any political phenomenon, really, actually, whenever I look at anything in the world, the first question I ask is, where did this come from? What are the origins of this? And So for that reason, I wanna start with the historical component of the anti-authoritarian current. And there's a lot to say about this history. I mean, I think that these politics are based in struggles stretching back to uh, indigenous resistance at the beginning of the colonization of this continent. I think that there are strong roots here in the original abolitionist movement which was the movement against chattel slavery on this continent, and I think also there's an important foundation here coming out of early socialist politics rooted in the late 19th century that were working class struggles against the capitalist system. But I do think there's something new, and I'm sure that that's already coming across in what I'm saying. I think there's something that's been coming together in the last couple of decades, a real kind of convergence between radical politics of various kinds, and broader-based movements in which lots and lots of people are participating. And so I want to talk about three strands in the more recent history. And I'm going to actually focus on three political strands since the 1970s that I think have significantly shaped what this politics looks like. I like to talk about the 70s onward, because when people talk about radical politics and activism, they focus on the 60s. But there's actually a lot that's happened since the 1960s. And I think much of what's happened since the 60s has fundamentally influenced what's happening right now. So I'm going to talk about these, these three strands historically, briefly. Uh, and the first is women of color feminism, sometimes also known as anti-racist feminism. Is this a term that anyone has heard before, women of color feminism? Okay was not expecting this to be something that was widely understood. Um, So when I'm talking about women of color feminism, I'm actually talking about a set of politics and activities that bloomed within the context of the liberation movements of the 1960s. And there's a lot to say about what these politics looked like and what was going on with them. And it's very hard to generalize, but I'm going to do that anyways. Uh, And I'm going to say that... I think one important generalization we can make about this political strand in the late 1960s and the early 1970s is that there were many women of color activists looking around at the landscape of activism and social movements, whether that was the women's liberation movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement and black power upsurges and so on, and they were saying none of these movements actually have a way to account for the ways in which we are simultaneously experiencing different kinds of sets of oppression, different kinds of power relations that are based in things like race, class, gender, and in many cases, sexuality. Because a lot of these activists were lesbian activists. They were lesbian women of color radicals. And so these people were coming together in small collectives, coming together around activist publications and publishing presses of various kinds. And they were trying to make sense of what was going on in the world and how they could understand themselves in relation to it. And, uh, and they were basically trying to build a new politics that we now think of as women of color feminism. But at the time, there was no, no way to name these politics. And I think one of the most important formulations of these early politics came from a collective in Boston called the Combahee River Collective. Um, And some of the people involved in the Combahee River Collective went on to become slightly famous within women's studies circles. So Barbara Smith, in particular, was one of these people. But her sister, Beverly Smith, also did a lot of important work as part of this collective. So in 1977, the Combahee River Collective wrote a statement. They tried to actually synthesize their politics. And I think that this statement still has a lot of important uh, use to it. And so I just want to quote one sentence from the Combahee River Collective Statement. So in Boston, 1977, they wrote, we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and see as our particular task, the development of integrated analysis and in practice, based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. So this was a mouthful. Basically, what they were getting at in talking about an integrated analysis was saying, we can't actually make sense of the social world by focusing on one set of power relations at a time. We can't just talk about economics and class relations, totally disconnected from how race works in the society and how white supremacy functions in the society. And we can't disconnect that from thinking about how gender works and how there's a long, dense history of systematic oppression of women in the society and devaluation of women and women's labor in the society and that can't be disconnected from how sexuality is regulated in the society and so on so they were they were actually saying we need to have an account we need to have a way of understanding how these things are connected and then we need to have a kind of multi-layered politics that will fight to transform all of these relations and all of the institutions that they're connected to simultaneously can't do it one at a time so this was kind of a foundational push back against single issue politics or what are sometimes called single issue politics of just think, focusing on one thing at a time. And this kind of analysis, this kind of politics related to women of color feminism has developed significantly over the subsequent decades. And there's much to say about that. I'm not gonna go in depth on, on it right now. I do just wanna say that one of the most important organizations developing these ideas and putting them into practice is called Insight Women of Color Against Violence. They came together in 2000, actually at a conference in Santa Cruz, and they've since developed chapters and groups and affiliates around the United States. And Insight has tried to really put together a political approach that rests on these kinds of ideas and then figure out how to make it work practically in community organizing. And so one example of this is an Insight affiliate that existed in Brooklyn, in Bushwick, New York for a good number of years called Sister to Sista that did community organizing with low-income young women of color who were often facing violence from their partners and also from the police in their neighborhoods. And this particular organization was trying to figure out how to develop campaigns and strategies that could fight violence on both of those fronts simultaneously, which sometimes meant confronting dudes in workplaces and publicly embarrassing them and sometimes meant going to police stations and holding really public protests to actually talk about the systematic targeting of people in their neighborhood by the cops in super racist and sexist ways. So Sister to Sister is just one example of Insight trying to figure out how to put some of this stuff into practice. The only other thing I wanna say about Insight is that they've developed a term that I think has become very popular and useful called the nonprofit industrial complex. Has anyone ever heard the term nonprofit profit industrial complex? Okay, so what they're talking about basically, and this was based on a, on a conference that they pulled together, and I believe it was 2004 in Santa Barbara, where they invited lots and lots of activist women, particularly involved in the movement against so-called domestic violence, to come to a conference and talk about what's it like to work in nonprofit organizations? What are the challenges and difficulties of that? And the shared analysis that they developed out of that was to talk about How, in fact, working in nonprofit organizations is incredibly constrained. Whoever pulls the purse strings actually significantly controls what can happen politically in organizations. And so the nonprofit industrial complex is a term for pointing to how nonprofit organizations are connected to private philanthropic funders and state funding. And those people who control the money actually place a lot of constraints then on what NGOs can do. I think it's a really useful term, and I think it makes a lot of sense that it's become very popular for people to make sense of these experiences of working. And I'm sure any of you who've worked in the nonprofit sector have had experiences with um, funding deadlines, grant cycles, and funders as shaping what can actually happen. Okay, so I wanna turn to the second political strand that I wanted to talk about historically here, which is prison abolitionism. Again, has anyone heard the term prison abolitionism before okay so when I'm talking about prison abolitionism this is something that I think is significantly rooted in the long black freedom struggle in this country which in my understanding looks like the projector has gone to sleep Um, hopefully you haven't though So in my understanding, the long African-American freedom struggle in this country has been significantly based on fighting against institutions of confinement, starting with the slave ship in the transatlantic slave trade and going up to the present with fights against prisons and detention centers and other institutions of incarceration. At the same time, I think that this political strand of prison abolitionism really developed as part of the liberation movements of the 1960s. And the thing to really bear in mind about this particular piece of history is that by the late 60s and early 1970s, prisons were hotbeds of political activism. There was lots and lots of resistance and organizing happening in penal institutions across the United States and Canada. And sometimes this actually welled up into upsurges, protests, and outright organizing of various kinds. And there's actually many, many stories to tell about this, but I think um, two of the biggest examples would be in 1971, the uprising at Attica, a maximum security penitentiary in upstate New York, and later in 1976, a hunger strike at Millhaven, which is a maximum security institution in southern Ontario that spread actually across the country as more and more prisoners started participating in the hunger strike and solidarity activists outside started also participating in hunger strikes. People inside were fighting to change the conditions of their confinement. And they were using any kinds of uh, options available to them to try and push for those changes. Do you wanna speak to this? Where is Millhaven? Oh, Millhaven is actually, you are correct. You actually have some sense of Canadian geography. Millhaven is just outside of Kingston, Ontario, which is, mm, I guess, the closest city to Kingston would be something like Rochester, New York, something like that. It's not isolated. Not at all isolated. Like it's, a, break city New York. it's It's definitely part of, a, of a, a whole sort of archipelago of prisons. Kingston is actually known as a prison city because there's multiple prisons cited there. So, a kind of broad prison abolitionist politics developed out of these fights that were happening in the late 60s and the early 1970s. And this was a politics that was actually trying to completely do away with institutions of incarceration. This was a a very, very radical vision that was being developed by feminist activists, prison activists themselves, as well as many pacifists, radical pacifists participating in different kinds of political organizations. That's how it goes. I roll with these situations. Um, so in the late 1990s, I'm going I'm to fast forward just for our purposes of time. The late 1990s, things were looking e- dramatically more intense and bad related to prisons in the United States from the 1970s. And this was largely due to what happened during the Reagan era in the US, right? There was a massive expansion of prisons huge amount of prison construction, and exponential growth in the number of people imprisoned by the early 1990s. And there's lots of complex reasons for how that all went down that we can totally get into in the discussion if you want. Um, But this was dramatic. And of course, it was intensely racialized because the vast majority of those people, overwhelmingly out of proportion to their presence in the population, the vast majority of these people are people of color, black and brown people in prisons. And people were trying to make sense of this. Why was this and what, what was actually going on here? And this guy, Mike Davis, offered up a term, the prison industrial complex in the early 1990s. And this term became really popular really quickly. It was a way for activists to talk about the interconnected set of institutions and in relations of policing, criminalization, imprisonment, confinement, immigrant detention centers, and so on and the very many people who are caught up in these institutions on a daily basis, right? Which which at this point is basically at any given moment in the United States, we're talking about more than 2 million people who are present in some form of incarceration. And if we account for people who are in jail as well, and immigrant detention centers, the number gets actually dramatically higher. By the late 90s, people involved in this sort of growing movement against the prison industrial complex Uh, started to congregate, or I should say the radicals in this movement started to congregate around a kind of new prison abolitionist politics. And this became associated with an organization that was first at conference um, called Critical Resistance. Started out in 1998, 1998 in San Francisco and then became a set of local chapters across the United States. And Critical Resistance was putting forward a politics that was about trying to abolish the prison industrial complex. That was their, that's their idea. They want to try and do away with this, which doesn't necessarily mean trying to burn down all of the prisons tomorrow, but actually working toward a future that wouldn't involve these mass institutions of incarceration throughout society. And in doing this, critical resistance and other abolitionists were putting forward a politics that's about really challenging the legitimacy of the state to police and punish people. That's incredibly radical and also Asking questions about how is criminalization and imprisonment actually connected to how the society is structured in relation to things like class, gender, race, sexuality, citizenship, and the many other social hierarchies that are at play in how the society operates. And abolitionists involved in critical resistance and other campaigns and organizations have been trying to figure out how to put these politics into practice. And I'm going to just give a couple of quick examples of this. One is critical resistance explicitly talks about how to have campaign strategies that aren't about reforming prisons. There's actually a long history of prison reform in the United States, which actually has meant further intensification and growth of prisons by well-intentioned people, um, some of them Quakers. But instead, critical resistance has been saying, how do we have a strategy to actually shrink the prison industrial complex. And a lot of times what that means is fighting campaigns in communities against prison construction projects, often rural communities, which is where many prisons are being built these days. Uh, And that opens up many interesting opportunities for talking about the environmental health effects of prisons, the social effects of prisons, and what it means for people to be imprisoned hundreds if not thousands of miles away from their loved ones, all of which I think are useful Things to be organizing around. A second example of putting prison abolitionist politics into practice is people uh, involved in these kinds of campaigns trying to figure out what would be some alternatives to relying on the police for dealing with harm and violence that happen in communities all the time. And the point here is not about trying to encourage vigilanteism. No one's talking about vigilanteism. People are actually talking about what would be community based programs to actually de escalate violence resolve conflict and work with harm. And just one example of this comes from New York, where for a number of years, activists tried to build what they called a harm-free zone. And the idea was, in a very heavily policed community of color, actually El Barrio in Harlem, people were trying to pull together a set of institutions and build some kind of community infrastructure so that there would actually be people and organizations for members of the community to turn to when they were experiencing violence, coming into conflict with other people, or experiencing harm. And a lot of this focused on mediation skills and other kinds of conflict de-escalation. The idea was, what would be the other option besides calling 911? Because in these situations, calling 911 often actually leads to really harmful stuff. right? In heavily policed communities of color, when you call 911, Sometimes it means, well, often it means somebody's gonna go to jail. Sometimes it means somebody's gonna go to prison. And actually, in a significant amount of the time, it means somebody's gonna get shot. And in Black Lives Matter movement, I think, has brought this more into the public dialogue in the United States right now than it has been in maybe 30 or 40 years. Okay, I wanna turn to the last historical strand I'm gonna talk about, and then I'll get into the principles, and then I'll talk about the lessons. So the last strand is anarchism. The anarchist political tradition has anyone heard of anarchism before (laughs) okay if we had more time together it would be fantastic to actually hear what some of your uh, impressions and thoughts are related to this label of anarchy or anarchism Um, and i promise i won't bore you with my two-hour lecture on classical anarchist theory which i used to do in high school Um, i'm just going to be brief about this and say uh, my understanding is that the anarchist tradition politically is rooted in working class struggles around um, inequality and exploitation. And these are really rooted in socialist politics of the late 19th century. And the vision of the kind of classical anarchist political tradition was about opposing capitalism, the state, and landlordism. Because in many circumstances, especially at that point in the world, people were dealing actually, were in peasant societies dealing with power relations related to landlords. Uh, At the same time, there was a positive vision that animated this political tradition. And that was one based on mutual aid, equality, freedom, self-governance, and other nice, lovely sounding things. The thing is, that anarchism is only partly related to what anarchism looks like today. And a large part of the story there is related to the liberation movements of the 60s and the kind of political experiences that that have shaped subsequent movements in the United States. Also the counterculture of the 1960s, which really shaped the kind of um, rebellious cultures that have emerged since then. Um, But at the same time, I think even more than that, there've been a series of movements since the 1970s that have significantly framed what anarchism looks like in the United States and um, where it's headed, and I think have in fact created a kind of cycle that we'll see continuing, uh, a cycle of kind of continued radical activism embedded in these politics. I wanna quickly just name, I'm not gonna go into any detail about them, but name some links in this chain of movement experiences starting in the 70s. The first link in this chain is what's called the nonviolent direct action movement, sometimes known as the anti-nuke movement. And this was activists in the 1970s and 1980s, many of them embedded in kind of feminist and pacifist politics, trying to fight against nuclear weapons and nuclear power. And they were using mass civil disobedience and other techniques to try and halt some of these major projects that were happening on both the East Coast and the West Coast. The second link in this chain was direct action AIDS activism of the 1980s, partly going into the 1990s. This is usually associated in the United States with the organization ACT UP AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which had chapters in many cities. And in the Canadian context, the organization AIDS Action Now, but there uh, there are other incarnations of these kinds of organizations. These were groups that were fighting, especially in the early 80s, against governments that actually refused to even recognize that there was a major health epidemic underway and that it was specifically affecting particular communities. And it's, it's no surprise or coincidence that it was a kind of radical queer politics that animated direct action, AIDS activism. And there was a real flair and creativity with which people took up civil disobedience and direct action to actually push for more funding for research and also create practices to care for one another as people were dying as people were losing many, many loved ones very, very rapidly. The third link in this chain is forest defense activism of the 1990s, often associated with the organization. It's actually not really fair to even call it an organization, Earth First. Basically, Earth First was a set of loosely connected groups throughout the United States and Canada and other parts of the world too, but concentrated especially in Northern California, Oregon, Washington, there have been moments when there's been some first in Alaska. Um, people trying to fight against the destruction of the last of old-growth forests, in particular, and using various kinds of techniques to prevent that, including living in trees and tree sets for weeks or months at a time, sometimes blockading roads to prevent vehicles to come through to cut down trees and other things, too. Um, earth Firsters engaged in intense periods of civil disobedience and built very resilient communities of resistance as they were trying to protect these trees. And the last link in this, go for it. Have they ever uh, acted in Alaska on behalf of, any of the forest here? Well, we can get in a little bit to the, some of the history of forest defense activism in the state. There have been moments when Earth Firsters have been up here, but to my knowledge, there's never actually been an Earth First in Alaska. Um, the last link in this chain, quickly, is what's called the sometimes the anti-globalization movement. I call it the global justice movement, and this was the basically the movement associated with a series of protests at major major um, summits of international financial institutions in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, really calling into question global inequality and. Uh, the kind of like power concentrated in many of these organizations like the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, and so on. Activists were basically using these summits as opportunities to stage major showdowns in the streets and try and shut these institutions down. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. The most successful and probably the most kind of mythological uh, moment in this movement is the protest against the World Trade Organization in Seattle. in. November of 1999, but there were earlier protests as well, such as in Vancouver in 1997 at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which in Canada is actually, so the, the acronym for that is APEC, in Canada that particular protest is known as SprayPEC because of the amount of pepper spray that the police used against protesters uh, when they tried to just encircle the, the summit that was taking place. So basically what these, this chain of experiences has put together is a set of ways of doing things that have become almost synonymous with radical activism these days. And one of these is a commitment to mass civil disobedience or direct action of various kinds, using bodies to directly intervene and try and put pressure on ruling institutions. A second one is Uh, attempts to put our values into practice by building alternatives of various kinds. And these could be things like food co-ops, housing co-ops, various kinds of trainings and workshops to work through and contend with the ways that things like race and gender influence organizing, how those power relations are actually present in organizing and activist spaces. And the other thing I think that's really come together through this is a strong commitment to using very deep or direct kind of democracy in making decisions, often in smaller groups and often using consensus decision-making, but sometimes other kinds of highly participatory democratic decision-making practices. And so basically, there's so much to say about these movement histories, and as you can tell, I get really excited about them. After 2001, after September 11th, 2001, movement politics, particularly in relation to the anti-globalization movement, became really challenging. Political climate in this country changed dramatically at that moment, and also there were internal contradictions within that movement that were starting to really come out. But many people who'd been radicalized through this chain of movement experiences took things that we learned and started to try and move them into other kinds of community organizing attempts of various kinds. There's a lot of examples of this, and most of them didn't get a terrible amount of attention, but I think there was a lot of sophistication and experimentation that happened there. One of the best examples, I think, is the No One Is Illegal network that emerged in Canada. Basically, No One Is Illegal came out of radicals, many of them anarchist-influenced, within the anti-globalization movement in Canada saying, after September 11th, 2001, what we're going to see is a rise in racism, a clampdown on borders, and immigration is going to become an enormous issue. We need to start organizing around that. And so, known as illegal groups have been developed in almost every major Canadian city. And these are basically collectives that work with migrant communities to push back against the immigration authorities, to fight deportations of individuals and families, and to use direct action tactics when necessary to make that happen, while trying to build some power and consciousness within migrant communities, a kind of self-defense consciousness, and ultimately work to actually dramatically change the whole border and immigration situation. Chris, could you tell us a little bit about how rigid the Canadian immigration system is, just to give people an idea of what you're up to do? For sure. I mean, it's. It's hard to compare the U.S. and Canadian immigration systems because the numbers are very different. In the U.S., we're just talking about many, many more people immigrating, right? But in Canada, one thing that's important to bear in mind that's different than in the U.S. is there's no limit on how long people can be in immigrant detention. So in the Lindsay Immigrant Detention Center in Ontario, there are some people who've been inside for 10 years. They haven't been deported. They haven't been tried they haven't been accused of any crime. They're just being held. So it's pretty dramatic, because even in the United States, there actually are limits on how long someone can be held in an immigration detention center, and which isn't to say that ICE doesn't violate those limits. Is that a lot of people being held like that in Canada? It's, uh, numerically, it's, it's probably not enormous numbers, but in proportion to the population of Canada, it's significant. And so my basic point here is that groups like No One is Illegal have been trying to work with that situation. And I should say, there are groups like this across the United States too, like Northwest Immigration Detention Resistance Network has been working in close solidarity with uh, people inside a detention center in Tacoma who've gone on a series of hunger strikes to try and get some resolution about their own immigration situation. Uh, And the Northwest Immigration Detention Resistance Network has been trying to build outside solidarity and sometimes engaging in their own hunger strikes in solidarity with what's going on inside. So this is a widespread thing, and and I think this is one place where we see people trying to take some of these kind of radical politics that they've have been developing through a whole chain of experiences, and then move them in to these kind of community organizing contexts. Am I making sense in terms of what I'm saying? Okay, I wanna I wanna actually move into talking about some principles because I think it's helpful to think about what are the actual kind of specific values that are animating this politics right now and one thing I should say about this is that there's no consensus within this political tendency about what to call these politics some people would call them anarchist autonomous radical a lot of people would actually refuse political labels altogether and I think I understand some of the reasons behind that And I think it's also predictable I like to use the term another politics for describing this kind of set of things that I see emerging. And this is partly based on uh, an expression that became more popular because of the struggle and fight of the Zapatista rebels in Chiapas, Mexico, since the mid-1990s, who have, in their fights against the Mexican state and actually calling into question capitalism, have talked about us needing other ways of doing politics. And they talk about their other campaign. It's a way that they try and hold a space for something and I like this expression another because I think it points to something that is still in progress is not actually fully fleshed out um, and yet something that can be shared something that can actually be held by a number of people at once and that is based really in questions right In recognizing that there's still a lot of uncertainty about how we make social transformation in the 21st century because after all if we knew how to make a revolution we would have had one already Right. So another politics I think doesn't have any party lines. There's no central committee that's determining how these things work, but I do think there are some core principles. So I want to talk about four of those principles quickly. The first one of these principles is struggling against all forms of domination all forms of oppression and exploitation. This is closely related to what I was talking about earlier with women of color feminist politics. And the idea here is this, this kind of, no, this is what we don't want. This is the thing that we're taking a stand against. And it's specifically talking about a set of systems and social relations in the society based around things like gender, sexuality, class, race, citizenship, ability, and other things, too. All the different ways that social hierarchies function in the society. And in concrete terms, this looks like people trying to put at the center the experiences of people who are in some way affected by these power relations and say, actually, people who are affected have significant knowledge about how to fight back, about how to change things, about how things could look better. And I think this this principle also entails what a migrant justice organizer in Montreal, Sarita Ahuja, called in conversation with me, reorganizing ourselves socially. And I I I like this expression, reorganizing ourselves socially. What she was pointing to, at least in my understanding, is that all these kinds of ways that power works in the society don't just exist externally to us. They actually happen within movements, within activist groups, in interpersonal relationships. So we have to reorganize ourselves socially in all of these different places. This is closely connected to something that the women's liberation movement used to talk about called the personal is political. The second principle here is about trying to develop new kinds of relations with one another and new kinds of organizations and social institutions together. And this is what I think of as the kind of yes the kind of positive vision that animates the anti-authoritarian current or the sort of central affirmative part of another politics. And this is often called prefigurative politics. Prefigurative politics is a fancy term that basically means within activism, trying to bring our visions and values into how we do what we do to the greatest extent possible. And that can mean trying to realize a greater level of democracy and participation in what we do, it can mean trying to push back against how power affects and shapes us in what we do, and it can mean trying to build other kinds of organizations, other kinds of ways of bringing people together. And I think it affects how we organize, what we build, and how we care for one another in struggle. It also frames as A prison activist, Marika Warner in Toronto, described to me the way that we interact, the way that we try to be aware of what is going on for people, and really try to make room for people to show up whole at the table. So this is a significant idea about people making space in movements for people to bring their whole selves, to not have to actually leave parts of themselves at the door, pretend that they're other people than they actually are. The third principle that I think is really core to another politics is linking struggles for the improvement of people's daily lives to long-term radical transformative visions. And I think the consistent question here is one that a housing and AIDS organizer in New York, Michelle O'Brien asked of me. She said, what's the connection between concrete activities and vision? This is actually a worthwhile question to ask about anything. What's the relation between concrete activities and vision? Why are you doing what you're doing? Where do you want to go, ultimately? Where do you want to get to with what you're doing? And I would say that in general terms, in the anti-authoritarian current, people are trying to forge this connection between activities and vision by fighting in this world as it is, which is a world that we didn't choose, right? It's a really imperfect world. And that often means fighting for reforms or fighting defensively to protect things. And then the key part is how do we connect that to the longer-term vision that we have, the more transformative vision that we have, so that we're not just caught up defensively reacting to things all of the time. Much easier said than done, I promise you. I should say the other thing about this principle is that a lot of activists are quite interested in the idea of building counter-institutions. And historically, in movements in the United States, counter-institutions are institutions that are about meeting people's pressing everyday needs. Housing, healthcare, childcare, spaces of play, food, right? There are many pressing needs in this society. And one of the questions is, how do we relate to these needs in a way that's actually also about changing how the society is structured? so that those needs won't exist on such a huge scale. Okay, the last principle I want to talk about within another politics I think is in some ways the most important and sometimes the most confusing. And this is organizing that is grassroots and bottom-up. And I'll, I'll just be really clear on this point to the best of my ability because I've noticed something in the last decade, which is that in a lot of places in the United States people have started using the term organizing to mean basically any kind of political activity. So posting your opinion on Facebook is not actually a form of organizing. Tweeting your idea is also not a form of organizing. Organizing is actually something much more specific and this became more clear to me in conversation with a criminal justice reform activist in New Orleans named Rosanna Cruz. When I asked her, what does organizing mean to you? She said, organizing is bringing people together in a long-term struggle that builds their power. I think that's, that's actually really helpful, right? Organizing is about bringing people together in bigger numbers in a way that actually builds their power to confront and transform institutions. So it's not just about expressing your outrage or giving out your great ideas. It's about coming together with other people and trying to build something. And within the anti-authoritarian current, I see a lot of people who are very committed to this vision of organizing, but also in a particular way because there are many different ways to organize. And some of those ways to organize are very instrumental. And we can see this, for example, in how political parties organize in the United States. They treat people like chess pieces on a board and move them around based on the priorities of a few people. So a bottom-up approach to organizing is actually about how can people together participate collectively in setting strategic objectives, making decisions, and moving together. That's a different approach to organizing than this kind of top-down approach that we so often see in many, many kinds of political organizations that usually turns people away, ultimately. Okay, the last thing I want to do in what I'm going to say here is talk about some lessons. Because I don't at all want to pretend that what I've been presenting is something that's coherent or figured out or perfect. There's no one that's got everything figured out. And what I've been talking about is actually, in many ways, a set of aspirations, a set of values that people are trying to move toward, not something that anyone has kind of got fully, coherently figured out and put into practice. But I do think within this set of politics, within these experiences that people are having across a bunch of movements over the recent decades, that there are some important lessons that are coming out about how we try and change the world. And I think that these lessons are relevant, not just for people who are committed to these politics, but actually for anybody who's interested in transforming the world. So I wanna conclude by talking about three of these lessons. And then we'll get into the discussion. So the first lesson is that how we treat one another is really important, particularly in activist groups and in movements that are trying to change the world. One of the things that we learn all too well in the society is how to treat one another based on values of disrespect, objectification, contempt, rivalry, and so on. Basically, I believe that a society succeeds very well at training us how to treat one another like shit. At their high points, movements open opportunities for people to relate in other ways, based on more positive values, like generosity, respect, kindness, genuine listening. But sadly, a lot of times even within movements, and activist groups there's a lot of treating people like shit that happens there's not in any place a set of people who got it fully figured out um, and are like <laughs> wonderful to the, to each other all of the time and in fact these ways of relating with one another negatively seep in to movements and activist groups all the time and I think really uh, trip up some efforts to try and change society and I think it makes sense I think in a society that's structured in this kind of pyramidal way with a small set of very wealthy and powerful people at the top, it makes sense that part of what we learn is how to dehumanize one another, to actually w- live in this like deeply hierarchical society. So it's, it's kind of built in to how this social world works but I don't think that we should give up on trying to move toward a vision of collective liberation and actually realize some of our values in how we treat one another. And I was really influenced to think about this based on a conversation I had with a prison abolitionist organizer in Montreal named Helen Hudson. At one point, Helen said to me, struggle can be a really humanizing experience. And what I understood her to be saying is that when people come together to fight collectively, we can experience a profound sense of our own humanity and the humanity of other people. I believe we can and should build movements where people can actually realize their best selves and see the best selves of other people. I actually think that's part of how we build resilient movements where people stick around and ultimately, where we might have a chance at changing things in the long term. The second lesson is about experimentation. There's a long history of social movements in the United States finding particular ways of doing things, whether those are particular civil disobedience tactics, particular ways of talking about oppression in groups, particular ways of making decisions or building organizations, and then just repeating them endlessly, without asking basic questions about, are these effective? Are these getting us where we want to go? And I think a more useful approach is to think about social change work as trying to experiment as we go. And in the context of the anti-globalization movement, some people use a formulation for this that I think is very helpful. They talked about movements as laboratories of resistance. I'll read you a a quote from David Solnit, uh, who was a leading organizer in the global justice movement and wrote about this concept at one point. David said, when we shift our thinking to see our organizing and actions as a laboratory, then we can see our actions as experiments. In keeping with the spirit, much of the value of the experiment is in the evaluation and discussion of what we learned. So I'm not trying to say anything complicated here. This is actually something that um, I think many of us probably learned in high school chemistry class. And that's that we should try something out. And often, it will fail. Sometimes it will succeed. Most things that we do, there's actually a mixture of success and failure. And then the point is to evaluate, to say, what worked here? What could we change? How can we make this more effective? I think this is a way to avoid getting stuck in just repeating the same things as so often happens in movements and activism. I think it's a way of thinking about building movements that can be ongoing learning processes rather than trying to figure out something that's gonna be perfect for all time because there's never anything perfect for all time. Okay, the last lesson I wanna talk about is the most abstract thing I'm gonna say in the, uh, the entire talk. And that's that uh, I think a crucial lesson for building movements is linking up what I understand as the against and the beyond. And these are terms that I take from a radical theorist named John Holloway. The way I understand these things is like this. The against is all of the activity that is pushing back, that is saying no against this existing system, and all the ruling institutions in this society. So this often looks like protest, right? Like people saying, we don't like this, we don't want this, we want this to change. That's the against, the oppositional activity. The beyond is all of the kind of activity that people do that's about trying to create alternatives, to create new kinds of organization, new ways of relating uh, that in some way embody different values and a different vision. And these can look like counter institutions. They can look like all the different kinds of experiments that people carry out to realize a different set of values. Unfortunately, in movements in the United States, the against and beyond, these two kinds of activities, the oppositional stuff and the kind of more constructive stuff, are often very disconnected. And in fact, people in these kind of two camps, if we can call them two camps, can be really terrible to one another about these kinds of activities. So the people who are involved in the against, the kind of oppositional work, can look on those who are trying to do the constructive stuff and say, you're just out to lunch. You're just starry-eyed utopians. You gotta be grounded in the reality of struggle and fight that's happening right now. And meanwhile, the people who are involved in the constructive activities can look on those who are involved in the oppositional stuff, in the against stuff, and say, why are you so negative? Where's your positive vision? And it can go back and forth like this. I've seen it so many times, and it's happened historically many, many times. I think that it would be useful for us to build movements where there was some appreciation and embrace of both of these kinds of activities. And I'm not trying to argue for everyone trying to do both of these things, but I'm saying we might be able to create a situation where we could have some appreciation and reciprocity between these two kinds of activities in building stronger and more resilient movements. And I'll just say a brief word on why I think that's important. I think we can fight all that we can with as much ferocity as we can bring. But if we don't have a vision, if we don't have constructive alternatives, we're not gonna win. We're actually not gonna be able to create and put in place something different. And similarly, if we're just building, if we're just putting forward alternatives, There, unfortunately, is a sad and distinguished history in the society of all kinds of oppositional and rebellious subcultures and communities becoming new marketplaces for capitalism, being co-opted into new money-making ventures that actually don't in some way challenge how profit and power work in the society. Punk rock is one of the best examples of this. But there are many, many others that we can get into if you want. So I just want to wrap up. um, And the last thing I want to say that I feel compelled to say is just that I think we do need to be real. I've been trying to present a sort of positive uh, vision of what's happening right now and what some possibilities for movement and activism are in this moment. But I think we need to be real about what's happening right now in the world. And the way I understand it is that life and life-making on this planet are being undermined at a level, at a scale, that is historically unprecedented, right? There is l- enormous amount of destruction, violence, and misery happening in the world right now. And there are people and institutions that are benefiting from that directly. So that's real. That's the circumstance. And we don't actually have a lot of time to contend with that, right? As so much of life and life making is in real jeopardy. At the same time, I think we can draw hope, or at least I'll say I draw hope from whenever people stand up and fight back and try and build alternatives. And I think I've drawn some of this hope recently from the Black Lives Matter movement that's reminded me of the importance of blocking freeways, which I was very skeptical about for a while. I think actually blocking freeways can be a, an amazing and important thing. And I also draw inspiration from things like the Kurdish liberation movement in northern Syria that's been in an intense showdown with ISIS. And at the same time has actually been trying to proactively build feminist culture in their fighting units as they're actually in like gunfights with ISIS. And they're actually trying to build a different society at the same time as they're fighting against really intense kinds of violence. So there are places throughout the world where people are trying to actually realize different values, sometimes with great costs and taking great risks. And I think we should hold on to those moments and try and grow them into whatever we can, right, to take them wherever we can go. So that's what I wanted to share with you. Thanks for, thanks for coming out.
0: This is being recorded. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop the recording now so we can just have a discussion so people don't have to worry about being taped. But it will be on iTunes or iTunes use tomorrow. Okay.